CNN has caught Donald Trump in another incredible gaffe. The Republican candidate for belligerent president greeted reporters outside his hotel with a hearty good morning, but CNN fact-checkers soon discovered that it was not, in fact, a good morning somewhere and ran scrolling text beneath the screen for the next six hours, naming those places where it was raining, cloudy, or otherwise just kind of blah and not good in the least. Experts contacted by CNN agreed that Trump had spoken too soon since the morning was only beginning and could not yet be said to be good with any certainty. Professional expert Reginald T. Sneering told CNN, quote, a president has to consider his words very carefully, and Donald Trump's ill-timed remark is further proof that he doesn't have the temperament to be commander-in-chief. He jumped the gun, and guns should be made illegal before someone just hauls off and shoots me for being a dithering putz, unquote. CNN's Christiane Amapour journalist and other Clinton campaign officials agreed that Trump's now notorious good morning misspeak is among his worst gaffes ever, up there with calling a bomb a bomb, calling a terrorist a terrorist, and calling CNN corrupt. A CNN panel spent three hours discussing whether Trump's good morning would finally be the mistake that brought his campaign to an end, then spent another half hour discussing why Trump's poll numbers had risen two points over the last three hours among viewers of CNN. Hillary Clinton, the Democrat candidate for taxidermically preserved president, discussed Trump's gaffe with reporters after fending off their shouted questions about what television shows she was watching and where she bought that alluring perfume. The so-called gaggle with reporters, a term meaning an informal gathering with slavering toadies in which no difficult questions are asked, was held at the back of the campaign plane that has been given numerous affectionate nicknames, including Broomstick One, To Hill in a Handbasket, and Hill Hath No Fury, like a woman who keeps being beaten out of the presidency by any damn fool who happens to feel like running. Addressing Donald Trump's good morning gaffe, Mrs. Clinton said, quote, Good morning. I think the fact that Donald Trump would wish people a good morning in times like these is just one more sign of whatever we told you people to say it was on CNN. America is in terrible shape, and we need a president exactly like the one we've had for the last eight years to make it different, because it's already great. I feel confident the blueberry toaster is floating above the garden hose. Wait, what was I talking about? Where am I? Damn it, the doctors told me these symptoms wouldn't appear until after the election. There are no doctors. I didn't send any emails. Where am I? Unquote. Although some reporters expressed concern that Mrs. Clinton's remarks may have indicated she was suffering from a cold or a brain tumor or something, the statement actually sounded much better when it was played later that day in an edited version on CNN with Mrs. Clinton's mouth moving and Wolf Blitzer dubbing the words. After that report, Blitzer signed off saying, good morning, this is CNN. Unfortunately, it was 7 p.m. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky. Life is tickety-boo Birds are winging, also singing hunky dunky doo Ship-shaped dipsy-topsy The world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray It makes me want to sing Oh, hurrah, hooray Oh, hooray, hurrah All right. I love it. Hey, our new open. Hey, we finally got it on. That was those were the Daily Wire singers. Uh, with this, that's a, that's a, it's the same team that does our Greek and Latin translations. And we have to always give special thanks to uh, Cynthia Angulo. We had to actually ask her last name because she quietly sits in this room doing all the best work at the Daily Wire. She did all the animation. She is absolutely great. So that is our new opening. And if you didn't see that, it's probably because you're not subscribing.
thing because if you subscribed, you could watch the entire thing on the Daily Wire. If you don't subscribe, you are you can watch it on Facebook or uh, YouTube for 15 minutes, and then the floor opens out from underneath you, and you just are dropped into <laughs> complete blackness. Or you can come to the Daily Wire and hear the rest, or on iTunes or SoundCloud, unless you subscribe. It is only a lousy eight bucks, which should just make you ashamed. And plus, they're giving away my book now, I think. I think if you su- if you subscribe, you now get a copy of The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. You get that for free for the a year subscription, I guess. Okay, and that, that's nice. And those, those of you who have mentioned that you haven't received the stickers yet, that's because I waited until all the pre-orders came in. I didn't want to just keep signing every day. I will now sign all of them, and you will get them soon. Wow, what a clavenless weekend! I was uh, <laughs> I was traveling. I was traveling to. Uh, by the way, I forget, before I go on, it's mailbag day. You know, I'm, I'm so I'm so disoriented. I just stopped. Off, I stepped off the plane. I mean, I got off the plane at like midnight last night. So here I am back, and I'm a little bit woozy. Uh, my plane stopped in Charlotte, Virginia. So that gives you an indication of what the Clavenless weekend, where the Clavenless weekend started. I was traveling. I went to the 700 Club. Do we have the picture of me with Pat Robertson? I met Pat Robertson. This is like I was on the 700 Club. Pat Robertson. When you come into the 700 Club, which is this huge campus, there is a picture of Pat Roberts, Robertson shaking hands with every famous person from, like, Julius Caesar. You know, I mean, the guy's old. I mean, the guy's getting on there, and he's, like, shaking hands with, like, you know, Caesar, Napoleon. There's actually, in all honesty, he, a picture of him as an adult man shaking hands with Harry Truman. So I said to him when we took this picture, I said, well, Pat, I guess for a man who shook hands with Harry Truman, this isn't that big a thrill for you. <laughs> but anyway, he was very gracious, and the show did very well. And hopefully we'll promote the book. Anyway, it was a Clavenless weekend to be remembered. I mean, things with there was terrorism in New York, terrorism in Minnesota, terror, terrorism all over the place. And then, as I said, my plane landed in Charlotte, and there were riots suddenly in uh, in Charlotte. Uh, there's, there were two police shootings. One of them, I have to say, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, still looking kind of questionable. That was Terrence uh, Crutcher, who was shot by a female police officer leading, you know, the New York Times to protest against having female officers because, you know, they're weaker, so they're more likely to go to their guns. That never happened. I'm making that up. Uh, <laughs> because she's a white officer, as it says in the Times and all everywhere. She's a white officer, not a white female officer. So you have to choose what kind of bigot you're going to be. You have to choose how you're going to contain people to get the narrative right. And I, so this is a big problem in uh, Charlotte, where uh, a a black guy was shot by another black officer. So it's really just indicative of the systemic racism of something or other. I don't know what happened. Anyway, the, the, what happened was they were uh, executing a warrant. See a guy in a car. Guy gets out of the car. Not only the police, but witnesses said he had a gun. And one of the officers shot him. Here is the chief of police in Charlotte. As they engage him, uh, he is armed with a handgun that we found on scene as well. Um, make some imminent threat to them. And um, because of that, one, at least one of our officers fired. And, of course, at the same time, the, guy, the guy's name is Keith Scott, Keith Lamont Scott, and his, uh, a woman who says she's his daughter put out this video which went viral and torched the whole thing off. They shot my daddy. I'm going to say this one more motherfucking time. My daddy was over there reading a motherfucking book in the car. My daddy's disabled. He can't do shit. They jump off the car and try to break the motherfucking window. My daddy like, what's going on? He put his hands up. This motherfucker jail, he got a gun. He got it. What motherfucker gun my daddy got? I'll show you one. So they shot his ass. No, they tased him first. Then they shot him four motherfucking times in the chest. 
So, so you choose which, which one of those guys you want to believe, the police chief. You know, it's, it is so, it's so crazy now. You know, police, police departments across the country have been, in fact, reorganized so that they represent, you know, the, the population that they're policing. Far more black officers, far more black police chiefs, as we keep seeing. We keep seeing these guys come on who are like all-American heroes whose skin just happens to be brown, you know. And we see, you can see, look in front of you, you can see these guys are noble, upstanding people who are helping other other human beings, and yet the New York Times and the ABC and NBC and CNN, they're all promoting people, you know, who, you know, God love them, I know they're ignorant and they're poor and all this stuff, but they're full of rage and they're saying this stuff, who knows whether it's true or not. At least these police officers have some kind of responsibility to the public, at least we can hold them responsible. My favorite comment about this, and I, I mean, you hate to be comical, but it's not my fault politicians are ridiculous. Hillary Clinton goes on the Steve Har- on Steve Harvey show, and Steve Harvey is doing this uh, worshipful interview with you, you know, how, what's it like being a grandmother, you know, what's it like, you know, you can call me, you know, what's it like, you know, but nobody asked me that question, they asked Hillary Clinton, what's it, and this is talking about the Tulsa shooting by the female but white officer, so this is the thing, the important thing is white, forget that, just put it out of your mind that she's female, she's white, she's white, and she shot this guy, and it, it's a questionable killing, we're not sure what happened yet, but it, it, it did look a little questionable, Here's what Hillary's going to do for us. We've got to tackle systemic racism, this horrible shooting again. How many times do we have to see this in our country? In Tulsa, an unarmed man with his hands in the air? I mean, Mm -hmm. this is just unbearable. And it needs to be intolerable. And so, you know, maybe I can, by speaking directly to white people, say, look, This is not who we are. We've got to do everything possible to improve policing, to go right at implicit bias. There are good, honorable, cool-headed police officers. We've seen them in action in New York over the last, you know, 48 hours because of the terrorist attacks. We can do better. We have got to rein in what is absolutely inexplicable, and we've got to have law enforcement respect communities and communities respect law enforcement because they have to work together so she's going to reach out to white people because she's got that special thing about being white you know we don't we don't have a lot of white people in this country so we have to reach out to the, the she's going to reach out to white people and explain to us that this is not who we are well, that was a wake-up call for me because I just wake up every morning thinking, you know, can I shoot an innocent black guy today? You know, I mean, that's, I, I think most white people, I mean, I mean, what, the, what is she even talking about? And then I like the way she says there are, there are good police officers in this country. You know, thanks, Hillary. You know, what, I mean, what on earth? Yeah, I just want to remind you, I, I just have to remind you, right? Barack Obama has been president for eight years. And that means that Hillary Clinton's policies, because she's not recommending anything that's any different than what he's been saying, have been in place for eight years. Here's Jason Riley uh, writing from the Manhattan Institute, my colleague at the Manhattan Institute, great writer, really uh, excellent observer. He's writing the Wall Street Journal this morning by almost any traditional metric homeownership, median incomes, labor participation, poverty. Blacks are worse off today than they were at the start of Mr. Obama's first term. The jobless rate for blacks has improved since 2009, but it's improved even more for whites, which means the racial gap in unemployment has gotten wider. And that's not, that, and this is not Riley anymore, but last year, the hourly pay gap between blacks and whites widened to 26.7%, which is the worst it's been in 40 years. This is under Obama, right? And Obama then has 
the gall to go before the Black Caucus. This is on Saturday. This is his last speech before the Black Caucus. First, play that the short clip, the first one. You may have heard Hillary's opponent in this election say that there's never been a worse time to be a, a black person. I mean, he missed that whole civics lesson about slavery and Jim Crow. And so his argument is that he's made things better since slavery. That's like that's where that's where he's coming from. You know, thanks, thanks, Barack, or as, as Obama himself would say, thanks, Obama. Okay, and now he he just this is this is I mean to me complete emotional. What's the word I'm looking for? Manipulation. He's manipulating people emotionally. This is what he goes on to say. Unbelievable. In fact, if you want to give Michelle and me a good send off, and that was a beautiful video, but don't just watch us walk off into the sunset now. Get people registered to vote. If you care about our legacy, realize everything we stand for is at stake. All the progress we've made is at stake in this election. My name may not be on the ballot, but our progress is on the ballot. Tolerance is on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot. Justice is on the ballot. Good schools are on the ballot. Ending mass incarceration, that's on the ballot right now. And there is one candidate who will advance those, those things. And there is another candidate whose defining principle, the central theme of his candidacy, is opposition to all that we've done. There's no such thing as a vote that doesn't matter. It all matters. And after we have achieved historic turnout in 2008 and 2012, especially in the African-American community, I will consider it a personal insult, an insult to my legacy. If this community lets down its guard and fails to activate itself in this election, you want to give me a good send off? Go vote. You know, that is an incredible incredibly dishonest speech. You should really look at it on the page. First of all, 1968 just called and they want their politics back. You know, I mean, it's, it, he starts out talking about slavery. He talks about Jim Crow as if that's where we're coming from. It wasn't in place when he came into office. Things were, things were better when he came into office. Things were better for black people when he came in for office. I'm going to have to stop here just to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube, but come on over to The Daily Wire, hear the rest, and then subscribe. So he says, you know, he says, it's a personal insult to me. And he talks about the progress we made. And if you listen carefully, the progress we made is black turnout. Blacks turned out for Obama, and they did. But there's no other progress. What other progress is he talking about? <clears throat> he, he talks as if Donald Trump were a threat to bring back Jim Crow. I mean, he's talking about things that are gone. And because it's part of the legacy, the narrative that the Democrats have been selling and selling and selling, that it, this constant sense that there is, you heard Hillary Clinton use the word systemic racism. Anytime a politician mentions systemic racism, somebody should say to them, what law? Name a law that is racist. Name a law that prevents black people. That's what systemic racism is. Because if you're waiting for the world to become just, if you're waiting for there to be no racism, 
you're waiting till Jesus comes, pal, because that is not happening while it's just us chickens here running the world. That's not going to happen. What would a friend say to a friend? Would a friend say to a friend, yeah, pal, you'll never get ahead. You'll never get ahead. The world is against you. The world is systemically against you, you know? Just be angry until, until, as long as there are people who say racist things, as long as there's a cop in a country of 300 million people who's a racist, as long as things are unjust, you will never get ahead. Would you say that to a friend? You would say, get off your backside and do what you have to do. Get an education. Marry the woman you impregnate. You know, raise your kids so it doesn't, so the stuff, the bad stuff that happened to you doesn't happen to them. You would talk tough to your friend if you were a friend, if you were a true friend, but they don't do this. And now Obama, having left us in rioting, with racial rage spreading across the country that he started to distract us from his failures overseas and at home. Now he goes to the UN and tells us that what we need is to spread his policies that have made life worse for the poorest among us, spread his policies to the world. This is Obama speaking his la- giving his last speech to the UN. The existing path to global integration requires a course correction. Because too often those trumpeting the benefits of globalization have ignored inequality within and among nations, have ignored the enduring appeal of ethnic and sectarian identities, have left international institutions ill-equipped, underfunded, under-resourced in order to handle transnational challenges. And as these real problems have been neglected, Alternative visions of the world have pressed forward, both in the wealthiest countries and in the poorest. Religious fundamentalism, the politics of ethnicity or tribe or sect, aggressive nationalism, a crude populism, sometimes from the far left but more often from the far right, which seeks to restore what they believe was a better, simpler age free of outside contamination. We cannot dismiss these visions. They are powerful. They reflect dissatisfaction among too many of our citizens. I do not believe those visions can deliver security or prosperity over the long term. But I do believe that these visions fail to recognize at a very basic level our common humanity. So he's pushing the same kind of socialistic top-down, we're going to control everything, we're going to make everything equal, that he's, that he's done to this country that has made things worse. We know the numbers are in. We know that Obama's policies make things worse for everybody except the top 1% of the top 1%. That's always the way socialism works. It promises equality to the people, but it's equality of poverty, equality of unemployment, equality of lack of opportunity and lack of goods. And then he's pushing this narrative that it's progressivism against the ancient evils of mankind, nativism and, uh, you know, fundamentalist religion. We brought in our Daily Wire expert to explain why people do bad things. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. More wisdom in 10 seconds of a Hollywood movie than Barack Obama has expressed in eight years. Listen, the evils are out there. The the answers have are as they have always been: faith, self-reliance, 
and freedom. We don't need Obama to spread the wealth around. We need people to be free and to build the world from the bottom up. That's the way it has always worked. It's always worked well. And when they make enough wealth, when people make enough wealth, the politicians come in and steal it uh, on the on the excuse that they're going to spread around, make the world fair. All right. So first he ruins the country, and then it's on to the world. Good job, Obama. Thanks, thanks, Obama. All right, the mailbag. Woohoo! And and, and hey, as we say, woohoo, we have to re- uh, just take a moment to remember our friend Lindsay, who was always so enthusiastic about the mailbag. She went down to uh, Texas to take care of her mom. Her mom uh, passed away. I'm sure she would appreciate your prayers. And so she's going to remain in Texas with her family. We really miss her. I mean, she is just. We are delighted to have Taylor Payne here to do the makeup and uh, take up some of the tasks. And uh, but. She would not try. No one could replace Lindsay. She was just uh, the best, and we love her, and uh, we're still thinking about her. All right, the mailbag. Greg, from Greg, what is your opinion on the creation of the world? I think it was a great idea. Uh, Oh, no, that's not what he wants to know. (laughs) A lot of of Christians believe it happened in one week, while others believe it took millions of years. Just curious as to your thoughts on the matter. You know, a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that the old-time religion was that the uh, book of Genesis was true, and uh, literally true, was a scientific explanation, uh, like an eyewitness account of what happened at the beginning of the world. That's not true. It is really only in the last 150 years or so that people have proposed that this was a literal description of the uh, creation of the world. St. Augustine, who was one of the uh, greatest and most intelligent, most brilliant fathers of the church said in the fourth century that we shouldn't go around taking these things as literal descriptions, as, you know, we should listen to the book of nature, what he called the book of nature, and listen to science. I think that Genesis, the book of Genesis, and the opening chapters of Genesis are probably among the three or four wisest, most important books ever written. If you can understand the first chapters of Genesis, you will know virtually everything you need to know to get through the world, to read the newspaper in the morning. It explains so much. Does it explain how the world was made? Yes, in a sense it does, but I'm perfectly willing to let science do what it does. This is what science does. Science explains matter. It explains how objects rub up against each other and what they do. So it it seems doubtful to me that the world was created in, that the universe was created in a week as we understand a week. It doesn't say, remember, that that a day was a day back then, but still, it just seemed, that doesn't seem important to me. It doesn't seem important to my faith. What is important to my faith is the wisdom of Genesis, which is unparalleled. It is unparalleled. It is one of the most incredible books. So those are my thoughts on the matter. From Rick, hello, Supreme Commander Clavin. I love it when they get my titles correctly. You know, I mean, you don't have to use all my titles, but I, I want to seriously know if you believe God leads you to the right person in life in the end, or is it just luck? Well, interesting. I I know that God led me to the right person in life, and, you know, I think that that is uh, an important part of my life, but more important in my life is this. I've talked about before how I met my wife, and it's a funny story. It's written in detail in my memoir, but, you know, I picked her up hitchhiking. She got into the car. She sat down, and I thought, click. You know, that was it. It was like, it was, it was literally like, I mean, I know it's not the most creative metaphor in the world, but it was literally like a puzzle piece falling into place. The fact that some 40 years later, I am still insanely in love with this woman. And when I say this, I'm not joking around. I mean, we've, we've had one argument in 40 years. We have had literally one argument. It lasted a minute and a half. And, uh, you know, and it was under these terrible, terrible battle conditions when I had had an hour of sleep and I kind of, you know, went off. And, you know, that, that's the kind of relationship we have. The fact that I was able to recognize that relationship taught me over the years that our internal 
experience has a corollary in the real world. See, what people always say is they say, well, that's a subjective experience. Your experience of morality, of conscience, that's a subjective experience. What they mean is that your experience is just as good as the other guy. So the guy who thinks it would be fun to kill somebody and cut them to pieces and eat their flesh, you know, that's his inner experience. That's what he thinks is right. And the fact that you think it's good to give a beggar bread and to be kind to your wife and to raise your children, that's your experience, you know, and that's and then from there we can understand that all cultures are the same and, you know, the guy the Islamic guy who says my religion is to kill you is not really acting out of his religion. He's acting out of some economic problem that he has. That's Obama's sales pitch. Instead of what he believes, that he has an inner experience that is wrong. He has an inner experience of morality that is wrong. So the important thing about love is that as you are capable of mistaking love, thinking that you're in love when you're not, you're also capable of getting it right. And that's the important thing. And you know what you do, you pray for discernment, you take your time, you don't marry the first person you know you meet and fall in love with, you wait and make sure it's real, and then go forward. And if you do that, yes, I think God is guiding you. I, I definitely do. I think that this is, these are the things that he actually will reach down into this world and take control of. All right, Greg, <clears throat> we've never seen you and Ben in the same place. How do we know you're not the same person? Uh, Greg, I'm sorry, we have to kill you now. Uh, we found out the truth, and uh, we have to get rid of you. That's, that's a very, very uh, sad thing. Um, you know, the, the way, the thing is, you know, the funny thing is, is if you take Ben's yarmulke off, his hair comes with it, and that is the, that is the secret, how we, you know, it's much better disguised than Clark Kent, who just puts on a pair of glasses and all this. Uh, so, yes, we are uh, the same person, uh, but one of us is shorter. I'm not sure which. All right. <laughs> sorry, I'm not with the same person. From Ryan. Uh, hi, Andrew. I'm a conservative atheist. I find myself grappling with the question of morality. Do you believe that atheists can be moral? If so, how can atheists counter those types of arguments and assert some sense of moral certitude? Um, he's talking about the, the letter actually was edited from there. It's, he says, too often I've heard from other atheists, leftists and even libertarians who tell me that morality is ambiguous. Some have used this to suggest that taboos such as incest or pedophilia are really not that bad. And that was what we were talking about before. Of course, an atheist can be moral. An atheist can be moral if he acts on the principles that you discover if you're not an atheist. I mean, that is really it. You know, I mean, I think the thing is an atheist can be moral, but why should he be? You're not moral because God will send you to heaven. You are moral because that is when, when you find God and you understand God truly, your heart simply turns to him the way a ship turns the true north. And you become moral not to get out of, you know, some punishment. You know, people always say that it's uh, shallow of Christians to be moral because it'll get them to heaven, but they never say it's shallow of Christians to exercise because it'll keep them in good shape. I mean, the point is not to win some award for being moral. The point is that is the direction that your soul turns to when it is moving in its proper direction toward God, okay? So that's that's the idea. Atheists can be moral, but as the Marquis de Sade wrote so pleasantly in his many uh, books of disgusting pornography, why would you be? Why would you be? Why would you not just do what nature commands? If nature is all there is, look at the animals. You know, a dog will be really nice to you as long as you feed it. If you happen to die, he'll eat you. You know, a dog does not care. He loves you. He loves you until he's hungry and you're lying on the floor, then he'll just eat you. You know, so, but people sacrifice themselves for other people and nobody else does that. And that is you know, the the idea for that is that there is a moral arbiter, a moral uh, center. How can something be better than something else? Think of it as a graph. How can something be better than something else morally if it's not moving toward an ultimate morality, and that ultimate morality is God? So yes, as an atheist, you can be 
a moral person, but you're not making any sense. All right, that's our mailbag, and now we will move to stuff I like. I have to say, I'm so glad I've done this. The minute this show is over, the minute they turn off the, the camera, I just, I'm going to pitch forward <laughs> into my keyboard. I'm so jet-lagged and exhausted. I hope I've made some kind of sense today. If I have, it would be a different, entirely different show than it usually is, so that would be exciting. All right, from stuff I like, the Pentatonics. I, this is like the third time they've made stuff I like. I just love these guys. They are an a cappella singing group. They are spectacular. They are singing here with Dolly Parker. Parton, one of her first biggest, one of her big, first big hits. I was a, a young man, like 19 or something, in, in a, working in a radio station in a college town, the town where I was going to college. I was working in a radio station, and I heard this song, and I remember thinking, who is that? That is some incredible voice. And this was Jolene from Dolly Parton. So here is Dolly Parton, obviously much older, but singing with this young a cappella group, the Pentatonics, her first really big hit, Jolene. He talks about you in his sleep There's nothing I can do to keep from crying When he calls your name, Jolene But I can easily understand How you could easily take my man You don't know what it means to be Jolene Jolene, Jolene, kind of got it dolly you know <laughs> she can still she's still hanging out with those those people i mean those are those, those kids have got their full voice and she's just you know putting it together with what she's got left but she she really sounds good and that i love that backup they are the greatest pentatonics and dolly parton i love it all right listen i'll try and uh, talk some more about my trip if i can it was a little tight today because we had the mailbag but we made it through and now i'm going to be carried out by my uh, native bearers <laughs> <laughs> My body carried out, laid on a pyre, and uh, set on fire. But I will come back together like a phoenix and be here tomorrow. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for watching and listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>